This week on the Bet on Yourself podcast, I'm talking to Brent Hoberman. Brent is co-founder and executive chairman of Founders Factory, a corporate-backed venture studio and accelerator, as well as the Founders Forum, a global community of founders and tech leaders, and First Minute Capital, a 210 million seed fund with global remit backed by Atomico, Tencent, and over 70 unicorn founders. I don't think there is a pessimistic entrepreneur. That, those, that doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. So I think you, you have to be optimistic. So if you're an optimistic entrepreneur while everyone else is in a doom and gloom mode, you're then thinking, how do I not play defense, but how do I play offense? So I think that's the, that's the major pivot strategy now is saying, actually, let's assume the world is a beautiful place again next year and that come pick your month, March, May, April, May, June, um, enough people are vaccinated and the world is raring to get back. How do you capitalize on that situation and take yourself forward to that? How do you, again, take hire the best talent? Because now is an amazing time to hire amazing talent. And you take a risk on talent now and you take a risk on growth. Previously, Brent co-founded LastMinute.com in 1998, where he was CEO from its inception to sale in 2005 for $1.1 billion. He is truly one of the internet's original unicorns. Technology businesses Brent has co-founded have raised over $800 million. The list is extensive, and it includes companies which support global entrepreneurs such as ProFounders Capital, Founders Intelligence, an entrepreneur-powered consultancy, Accelerate Her, a network taking action to change the underrepresentation of women in tech, Founders Keepers, a technology ex- executive search firm, Founders of the Future, a network that identifies and supports aspiring entrepreneurs, Founders Pledge, a community for entrepreneurs committing to finding and funding solutions to global challenges, as well as GRIP, an AI-powered event networking solution, and most recently, Founders Academy, a new type of business school for a changing world. Brent is the chairman of the Karakuri Board and sits on the advisory boards for the Royal Academy, the UK Government Digital Service, the World Economic Forum Digital Europe Group, and the Imperial College Innovation Fund. He is also a male champion of change for the Global Tech Group, and in 2015, he was awarded a CBE for services to entrepreneurship. Brent is truly a remarkable entrepreneur, and this episode is full of wisdom for anyone looking to make an informed bet on themselves. I have a feeling you're going to want to listen to this one twice. (laughs) Buckle up. Right. So Brent Holberman, thank you so much for joining the Bet on Yourself podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Delighted to be here. You've had an absolute incredible career. And when I was thinking of the ideal guest for the first season of Bet on Yourself, you were very high on that list. So I'm really excited that you said hello and made some time some time to, to be with us today, because I think your journey is so interesting because you really started at the very beginning of the dot-com era, as did I. Um, my very first job, as you know, was um, I started at Amazon at 2002, sitting at Jeff Bezos' side while he was trying to invent e-commerce, and you were on a similar journey uh, on the other side of the world. So I wonder if you, maybe we can start from the beginning before you even um, started lastminute.com, which was, I think, your first internet venture. Um, maybe you can walk me through your early life, what you thought you were going to be uh, when you were small, and what led you initially to dive into this crazy thing that was called the internet. Great. No, thank you. Um, look, I, 
my early life, weirdly, because my father was into finance and venture capital, he invested money in venture capital, and my grandfather had set up uh, a clothing chain across Africa and beyond. I had entrepreneurship in my early DNA, and a lot of it came from seeing my grandfather and how much he loved what he did every day. So I thought, wow, that's amazing to love your work and to love what you do every day, and I want to do that. And it wasn't, some people think people get into entrepreneurship, I think it's about the money or this, that, or the other. It really wasn't. It was much more about, he loves his work. And it was just, I want to love what I do every day too. Um, so early entrepreneurship bug, and that therefore it was forcing myself, strangely, I don't know if many other entrepreneurs have this, but forcing myself to come up with ideas for entrepreneurship right from when I was at school, I would... My father helped me build a pirate radio station. You know, it's not quite entrepreneurship, but it's related. I would set up some of the clubs and that sort of thing. And then there wasn't at the time, school in, in my terminology, I mean up to the age of 18, there wasn't much in terms of entrepreneurship clubs or things like that way back in the, uh, in, in the God, 80s probably. Um, yeah, uh, so that wasn't an option. But then when I went to Oxford University, funnily enough, a friend of mine, set up the first ever Oxford University business plan competition. Incredible. Uh, so I did enter that and I came second. And I do often say that the guy who came first, I'm sure his dad wrote his business plan. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the experience was good and it showed, uh, and, and I remember even sort of doing the typical entrepreneurship things. I remember David Putnam, the famous film producer coming to Oxford and talking to him about the idea and that sort of things. Um, and then later on, when I was a, so I left Oxford and went to be a strategy consultant, which I think is actually a, you know, some people critique it, but I think it's actually a pretty good platform for people thinking about being an entrepreneur. It's quite good because you're getting paid to learn. So if you're in the right space, it's a pretty good, a good career uh, to start, place to start. So I started there. And in my first job, a strategy consultant called Mars and Co, because BCG and McKinsey wouldn't give me a job. Um, so I had this idea for, which wasn't a brilliant idea by any means, but it was an idea to be a magazine and distributed about, uh, about London and to be distributed across taxi cabs. Um, or, so you would have this free distribution. And if you did that, you'd be in the top 10 circulation magazines in the UK. So I thought this was a good place to start an entrepreneurship journey. And I told my boss at the time that I had this meeting with the public car carriage office, the people who regulate London taxi cab to try and get in and see if this was a goer. And my boss, who um, for probably maybe reasons that are obvious to listeners to this podcast, didn't like me very much and thought I was an absolute prima donna, which maybe I was, and <laughs> deliberately set up a client meeting for me with Elf, I remember the big oil company, um, at exactly the same time, two weeks later, when I warned him that I had to meet the public car carriage office. And so I'd been honest and openness that I want to do this. And he said, well, we got this meeting. And he never, I was so junior, he'd never normally let me come to client meetings. So this was the one time he let me come to client. So I said, I'm sorry, I owe it to myself, but I'm going to go and, um, and pitch this business idea because it probably won't work, but I, I'll never forgive myself for things you don't do, right? The bet on yourself point of your podcast. So um, I bet on myself, did the pitch, uh, didn't get the permission and got fired from my job. 
so I got fired, not directly from that, but after that point, he and I could basically not look at each other as we walked past each other in the corridors. Uh, he just clearly had this allergic reaction. Um, and um, so very luckily when that company fired me, uh, I actually had a voice message. I mean, it's one of these weird things of life, a voicemail at the time. As I walked out of that meeting where they said, we think you're a prima donna, you should go and go to Goldman Sachs or somewhere like that. Um, I had a voicemail uh, from Spectrum Strategy Consultants offering me a job because I had, I had seen the writing on the wall and, and didn't like it either. So, and Spectrum, interestingly, this was in about 96, was a small strategy consultancy. I was the 10th employee and it worked just on media and telecoms. It was actually a BCG and Booz Allen spin out. And it worked on the fun stuff. I thought media and telecoms was the fun stuff. And then in that job, I couldn't believe I was being paid just to read about cable news and digital business plans and even web TV, the early e-commerce models, TV commerce, and all of that was happening at the time. So it got me very excited about, uh, that, about that journey and about the internet. And I used to work in 96 for projects like a friend of mine who had worked on it with me just sent me just a reminder about it the other day for cable and wireless on voice over IP, so a telco on voice over IP in 96. And I remember the interesting thing about the naivety of the entrepreneur, I remember not understanding voice over IP technology by any means, but telling cable, cable and wireless, this was going to happen, you know, determinedly as a whatever 25 year old, it was going to happen, it was going to change their business. I'm um, not because I was brilliant, just because I was an optimist. Um, <laughs> they obviously knew so much, they said it'll never work. And then obviously a few years later, Skype came out. But um, so, and it was there when I was at Spectrum Strategy. So I'm giving you a very long answer to the question. But um, so you stop me if it's... Uh, no, no, it's um, all very relevant and interesting. Yeah, thank you. So when I was at Spectrum Strategy Consultants, I saw the internet coming. So this was literally 96. And then I thought, well, I'm an early adopter. So I've always loved technology and application of technology. And funnily enough, the only thing you could buy online in 96, and I, I looked, so the business case I looked at of e-commerce. So I looked at e-commerce from a business point of view, a business plan point of view, because that's what I was doing, the writing business models, and thinking, wow, e-commerce makes a ton of sense. And then I thought, I'm an early adopter. Why is the only thing I can buy books from Amazon in the US? Amazon had actually not yet launched in, wow. over here. Uh, in, and so I thought, well, what would I do? What would I buy? And I just literally thought I would do everything at the last minute. So I would buy everything at the last minute. And I thought that last minute, that time, you could slice consumer demand by people who wanted to do everything at the last minute. So hence, lastminute.com, the idea came then. And then interesting for those people listening, what I did is nothing. I wrote the business plan with a, with a, with a friend um, and then thought about it and thought, well, look, I've never, I thought it wasn't time to better myself. I thought I've never managed anyone. I thought the internet's too small. Um, and I thought I wouldn't have had the credibility. Right. So what I did is I put the business plan in a drawer. Every morning woke up terrified somebody else would be doing it because I was still in love with the idea. Yeah. And I decided to get credibility. So in other words, leave that job, work in the internet. So I went to line one which was actually, with hindsight, a really good place to go. Line one, nobody will remember it, but it was an internet service provider jointly owned by British Telecom and News Corporation. And I got a job doing business development for them. And I just stayed there six months, but those six months were really important to me because I could meet everyone I wanted, even though I was, I don't know, 25 at the time. You could ring up anyone and say, I'm, you know, you basically say, I'm working for Rupert Murdoch and BT. And everyone would say, 
yeah, when can I, when can I get a meeting with you? Um, and actually, funnily enough, one, just to segue with your past world, I did, one of the things I tried to do there was tell them to buy book pages. Uh, and book pages ended up being Amazon's acquisition and market entry into the UK. And I tried to get line one to buy it, but they oh. um, didn't, and Amazon did. Um, and then I actually tried to launch lastminute.com within that big corporation and said, guys, here's an idea, let's do it. And I totally understand why they didn't do it. And one of my more surreal moments in life was years later when I finally met Rupert Murdoch, who was my boss's boss's boss. Um, he said to me very charmingly, he was introduced to his drinks party and said, I've heard so much about you, to which I thought, oh my God, I'm so much about you. And I thought, how would you have heard anything about me? But the story of why News Corps had said no to lastminute.com had become, I think, a sort of corporate innovation story within News Corp. Um, so, but anyway, what I what I then did was uh, again did the did the line one ISP thing for six months. Then met a interesting entrepreneur called Tim Jackson, who started a company called QXL, an online auction company, or Quick yeah QuickSell, then called QXL, uh, and joined him. It was just him and I at the beginning, and we built that, launched that, and. Uh, that was, again, I just stayed with him for a very short amount of time and then had it in my, in my contract, employment, employment contract with him. I had an exemption for a non up to the non-compete for doing lastminute.com. So weirdly, I wasn't very good at thinking about laws or details or contracts, but I did somehow think I still might want to do this lastminute.com idea. So I had it as an exemption that I could do. He said, look, it's a pretty rubbish idea, Brent, you'll never do it. Um, so you can have it in the, or not in your exemption. And after four or five months, I just thought this internet thing is happening too fast um, and I'm going to go and do it. And then I found Martha Lane Fox, who I'd worked with at Spectrum, the consultancy. I was the 10th employee. She was the 11th. And I said to her, leave your job at Carlton TV where she wasn't loving it and come and join me and let's launch this. There is so much to dissect, so much wisdom in just that brief intro. First, you recognize the most important thing um, is centering your work around something you're passionate about something you wake up super excited about that doesn't lose momentum for you. It remains really exciting. Then you built your career on early stage career on learning as much as possible. And then you were wise enough to know that you needed some credibility to do something with that wisdom. And fourth is recognizing the market opportunity. I've seen so many really good ideas not get traction because they were ahead of their time. They weren't wrong. Their instincts were exactly right, but they just came in a moment when the technologies or or the end consumer just weren't ready to be there with you. So there's so many things that I see a lot of entrepreneurs could learn from in those early stages, especially those who are at the beginning of their career, of knowing how to evaluate different opportunities that come their way. So now you're at this moment, you feel like the internet's now, you've got this idea and you've got your, I think, again, a big part of this is identifying your co-founder because I think all the best, I've also seen so many good ideas not get any traction because they didn't think about the people and the talent first and creating that core team. So describe for me, how did you get um, lastminute.com off the ground um, in those very early foundational stages? And then you had rapid growth, the dot-com bust, and it survived that and had one of the most successful exits of, of internet history really. So. What was that roller coaster journey? I oversimplified it. I know. <laughs> no, well, the, the arc. So, I mean, part of the arc, absolutely fine. Recognizing that I wanted a co-founder was the first thing, and yeah. I thought of that because when I spoke about that early online auction business, I was definitely maybe part of founding team, but not co-founder. Mm -hmm. And the guy running it, Tim Jackson, was I think he'd understand if I say this now, and he was watching this. He was super stressed. 
he put a lot of he put a lot of his personal money in his personal time his personal capital too much almost almost was invested so he did make it work and very successful in the end but it was just i didn't want that level it's always going to be incredibly stressful as an entrepreneur but i didn't want to do all that on my own mm -hmm. so i thought it's all consuming i'm going to be a captive of this business which is great but i want someone to share that with so I thought back to Martha, who I had worked with at, at Spectrum and had loved working with. She was fun. She was smart. She was analytical. And she sort of loved people. And she was a talent magnet as well. So mm. I thought, great. You know, together we'll work really well. And she was also, you know, very analytical. So I think, I think when I would go, you know, off to maybe fanciful places and ideas, I think together we'd brainstorm back to something that was very practical as well. Because recognizing your strengths and focusing yourself just on those strengths and then hiring or partnering with someone with complementary strengths to your weaknesses is essential. I will never be an Eric Schmidt or Jeff Bezos. As much as I try to teach myself to be their brain double, their skills are in the dreamers. They're the moonshot dreamers. And I'm an implementer. And the two go really well together. So I think for entrepreneurs listening to this, it's so important to be real with yourself about what you uniquely bring to the table and what you need to hire for. So that you recognize that in your co-founder and Martha was, was essential, I imagine, in, in surviving the wild ride you were about to go on. And then, absolutely, and I think the other point that, again, I didn't think about it then, but I think with hindsight, I just want to try to put, put a, fit a matrix onto these things. Um, it was actually the culture we were able to build. The fact that she and I were actually friends, enjoyed working together, uh, meant that together we could build a culture that was really quite special. I mean, one of the things we're most proud of, I think, both Martha and I, when you look back at last one, was the, the sort of people, the talent we hired, you know, people like Pete Flint, who went on to found Truly, that's worth three and a half billion, sold for three and a half billion, was our fourth employee. So this early stage talent and that culture of people who just loved, they loved it. They loved working there. And I think part of that was because the passion they saw that both Martha and I, as to your earlier point, we loved what we did every day. We thought this is really a fun, exciting business because also there's part of the mission. Nowadays, one talks a lot about mission statements and stuff, but back then Martha and I did have the mission statement. I won't repeat it word for word, but it was about helping people live their lives more spontaneously and enjoy themselves more. So it's like, like who doesn't get out of bed to, to, you know, to go and help everyone have a better time every day. I love that. How motivating. So you get started on this journey. Tell me about this exponential growth. And especially, do you think there's a formula for scale? So many of my clients right now are in this wonderful pain point of having astronomical success suddenly, even in this COVID year, and things naturally start breaking as you scale very, very rapidly. Did you, have you dissected a formula for scaling that you learned then, or maybe with the founders that you're working with now? Formula is tough, but are there certain certain lessons and stuff? I mean, I think look, one of the things that I think we could have done a lot better is the backbone technology. When you look at companies that, so we bought a lot of businesses, which I think still made sense. We had a highly value, we had a valuable public stock. We were able to buy revenues and stuff early and and seize seize market share. But the downside, the reason why we didn't end up being as big as Expedia or something was actually because they had a beautiful technology platform that they could snap everyone into. And actually, and they bought, actually, they did, it wasn't that beautiful. They actually didn't buy, they had more money to do customer acquisition. So they didn't buy till later, actually. Um, so it, the fact that when we acquired companies, it was a very clunky integration. 
because also remember this was the early days technology just wasn't simply as good you know back in early 2000 as it is today so that was one pain point i think the other pain point is just working out what's the sort of talent you want to hire and i think we work that out i think what the lesson i i I impart from that is probably again one of the mistakes we made was we hired well in the sexy part of the business so what i mean by that is the fun the enter the custom the the brand the building the brand the marketing or the front-facing stuff we had really world-class talents we focused a lot on that um we also had some really good technology guys as well for our tech team but where we may have done better is things like just the finance system. I mean, how many entrepreneurs love thinking about the finance system, but it can tear you apart. It almost lost me the whole company because it meant mistakes were made in finances. We were a public company. It's like, oh my God, you have to, you, you get mistake. You get told when you thought you were at 5 million profit, it's 10, it, it's sorry, 10 million, it's 2 million or something. Cause there's a mistake we just found. Right. That's sort of terrifying for a CEO, particularly one of a public company. And if you don't, Put, so I often say, put some of your best people, particularly tech guys, sometimes on your most boring yeah. parts of the technology stack. And they'll figure out ways of automating and making it beautiful. If you say, when you fix this, you can go back and do the exciting stuff. And they're like, okay, done. You know, one month later, I fixed it. You know, that's the sort of thing I think people don't do enough. So true. As a recent transit from a big company where I had all the exports and experts and resources at my fingertips well during my 12 years at google and now starting my own venture i definitely relate to that there's parts that i don't wake up excited about doing every day but those are often the ones i need to focus the most on so again yeah (laughs) hopefully i can then bring in some expertise and allow them to really focus on that so i can focus on the fun stuff which is this (laughs) Um, so then you had this enormous success and it led to you survived the dot-com bust This is right around the time I was coming onto the scene. I was finishing university and joining Amazon. Everyone had lost like 95% of their investments. Um, There was enormous scrutiny. I remember what it felt like to start at Amazon in 2002 when all of our investors had really lost trillions of dollars overnight. And they were laser focused on us because we were one of the sole survivors. And Jeff was that way because he's so naturally frugal. That was a big part of his family values he'd been brought up on. Um, How did you survive it? And then end up as one of Europe's most successful and the first, I think, unicorn coming out of um, your exit. How did you make that transition? Um, I, look, I think it was really, it, when your share price is going, we were one of those, you know, obviously at the time, you're right, there were headlines like Amazon.bomb, you know, were the bigger headlines. Um, and we were like last minute dot con, um, you know. Uh, so people were absolutely willing us to fail. A lot of schadenfreude, the, the, ind- the existing industry players, and then were saying, you see, we told you so, this thing's never going to work. The share price went down 95%, as you identified, because of the dot-com crash. Um, Hedge funds were out there sending anonymous faxes, back in the day faxes, saying we were going bust when we weren't. But that would make the suppliers squeeze us and they would short our stock. So there was a lot not to love. Um, But, uh, you know, the, the key thing, I think, for us was that we focused on the customers and we focused our team on the customers. And this is a sort of cliche, but it's really to say, we were growing very fast organically. And so we said to our team, look, clearly people do love what we're doing and we are skating to where the puck is going. You know, this is a trend that is unstoppable. We are going to take market share from all these players and create a new market. The internet is not going away. And we have enough proof points that our customers love it. 
And although it wasn't tens of millions, it was probably millions at that point, you could still see that. And so we just focused people on that. And we focused also on all the new stuff we were doing. I mean, maybe we did too many new things. We were very early on lots of things. We, I did voice recognition in probably 2000 or 2001. You could order a hotel from our database. We did restaurant food delivery. And I think again, 2001 before. Now you look at it, you say, you know, probably a business school mistake is my mistake not to switch off everything else and just do restaurant food delivery. Um, whereas my, my chairman actually at the time almost fired me for buying a restaurant food delivery business. He's like, why would anyone want this? Um, you know, I'm like, because of course, as soon as we get to broadband, because in those days, a lot was still narrowband. I'm like, think how much easier it's going to be to order online. Um, so, but yeah, I think keeping team morale in, in that environment was probably the most challenging thing. You have to, as a leader, you have to keep your own morale up. And obviously, uh, the outside world is obsessing about, for example, everyone's obsessed that on paper, you were worth this. You're not thinking about it, but everyone's writing things. On paper, he was worth X, and now he's worth this. And what's that must feel like? And we never really thought about it. But, um, right. you know, and I wouldn't have, I, we could have sold the whole company before IPO. A couple of companies offered to buy us. Uh, but I don't regret, I think I would have made more money that way, actually. But I don't regret not doing it because, the time I spent running that company was like three business careers in one. Yeah, for sure. frequently asked questions from entrepreneurs is how do you know when to continue to bet on yourself and when do you listen to the doubters? And you identified in this pattern for you, you really looked at the data-driven decision-making. You had key indicators saying you were on the right track. And then you focused on motivating your team, keeping them lifted up, not listening to the headlines, not paying attention to these false numbers. Of, your bank account actually wasn't changing every day. So why, it, you know, it wasn't gonna change your foundations. So really staying, staying the course and um, focusing on the things that you knew through this data you were tracking was, was having the key results that you needed to see. And it's interesting that you, I think you're right. Um, there's so much to learn sometimes from these early stages that really are three careers in one, which can be a little bit dizzying um, if you're not super focused on, on the customer, on what you were trying to deliver. And so much of what you're saying resonates with my early experiences at Amazon which was really, I think that we really survived for the same reasons that Jeff was obsessively focused on the customer experience and really building up consumer trust. Cause at that time people weren't used to buying online. There was no trust of putting your credit card in some mysterious thing. There was, I think um, the generations coming into entrepreneurism now don't appreciate how big of a hurdle just that level of trust building was in the very beginning. Yeah, no, I remember I going, Martha and I going to see Stelios, the founder of EasyJet, when there was just a phone number on his plane. There was no, no, there was no website. That's so right. we persuaded him that he should go on, uh, take it onto the internet and that the inter this internet thing was coming. And obviously, actually, things like that really helped. The fact that, that then what happened is you can only buy EasyJet and Ryanair tickets online. And so it forced everybody on that. And one of the other things we did was we did restaurant bookings and theater bookings, partly because they were low-risk items for the customer. So it would get the customers in the habit of buying with us and trusting us, and then they could buy their big holiday or whatever. Incredible. So but to, to your point quickly, um, one of your points about data, you know, I, I think now maybe to most people, the tools and stuff have got so much better, but early on we were obsessed. You're right. As a, I think good founders that I see are obsessed with two things. They're, 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 they're chess players and they play 10 moves ahead. 
not reducing your options, keeping options open, thinking how to play the chessboard well of, of business strategy. But then they're also micro, you know, and particularly in my case and, and others, when you're in retail is that cliche, it's detail. So it was things like we would have daily, I would get this, the, these daily reports on ratings of our web, web pages, conversion rates, I would actually get every 15 minutes by, by product category. I would get, um, so you get the numerical and then I get the anecdotal. So I get anecdotal feedback from customers about what they liked or didn't like about, about various aspects every day, the whole management team would see it. And I found that very powerful, that mix of the anecdote combined with the data to help you prioritize decisions. Incredible. I, that is really being obsessed with those markers and really knowing what to measure, knowing which parts matter, which parts to watch very, very carefully and which parts are just a gut instinct is this beautiful combination that makes being an entrepreneur both terrifying and thrilling at the same time because you do have these indicators that you're going on it and a lot of it really is that gut feel um so you've had such a rich career as a founder yourself and now so much of your focus is on supporting entrepreneurs who are on similar journeys and paying these lessons forward so fast forwarding to 2006 you co-founded um, founders forum which is actually how um, I first interacted with you because Eric Schmidt has been a participant in many of your events and I wrote all the briefings and prep for, for his participation there and I was really inspired to see um, the support system for European entrepreneurs because I've always felt very strongly it's important to democratize the internet and entrepreneurism and not see this brain drain of feeling like everyone needs to go to Silicon Valley to be successful. What was your original, was that part of your original vision of wanting to support homegrown entrepreneurs and keep them in the UK? I think this is one where I'll be honest, I, it's, it's one of these strange things where I don't think there was a master plan or a vision initially, actually. But I think often when you're building a community, which is really what Founders Forum is and was, the, the best times when that happens is it's just something very organic. Mm. And so the problem statement for me was, well, look, what do I do next? I just sold my company, right? Um, how do, quite selfishly, how do I stay relevant? You know, because what I loved most about running a, what was, I guess, a hot internet startup at the time was that relevance, you know, that you could, you were in the thick, in the middle of it, in the heart of things, and you could yeah. use your talent in that way. And so I thought, well, how can I use, uh, how, how can I stay relevant? But then I also thought that lots of my friends were entrepreneurs in different geographies and in different sectors. And because lastminute.com had touched so many geographies and was in so many verticals, I was sort of very lucky and privileged to have that. Whereas many entrepreneurs I knew were only in one country, in one market, like maybe they were just selling used cars in one country, you know, and that was it. So, but what I also noticed is that there is a tribe of entrepreneurs who love meeting each other, learn from each other, and are a good support group to each other. So let's put them all together. And yes, to your point also, let's create something pan-European, um, because I also felt people were even then too siloed in their in their own geographies. So I felt if we thought bigger, if, if we we would think everybody would think a bit bigger if they could have that catalyst of, of meeting other European founders. And so we did that. We got them all together in a room. It was only about 60 people the first one. Now it's, you know, the, the industry's growing, the quality's growing. We had a very high quality bar. And actually, I'll say weirdly, it sounds strange, but I think too high for that first event huh. because it was sort of only seasoned entrepreneurs and everyone was, I mean, smug's the wrong word, but it was a bit complacent. It sort of lacked energy. 
in a sense. It was lovely and cozy and nice and everyone's friendly. But so what we then thought later is when you get seasoned entrepreneurs who've done well, one of the things that they are most excited and energized about is meeting the next generation of people who have breakthrough ideas. So that's, I think it was that hook of found the founders formed the community was successful entrepreneurs picking the upcoming rising stars, mixing them together, and then later on adding the big corporate CEOs, like the CEOs of British Airways or, or British Telecom and Sky and those sorts of companies. And then you'd um, add a few of the top venture capitalists and not too many actually, because it was what was special is the sort of founder centricity of that community. Okay. So over this last year, we have seen a lot of pivots. I've definitely experienced that with my global consulting clients. In your experience with these CEOs from all over the world, especially those that are, are part of your organization, have you seen any key indicators or is there a secret sauce for how to pivot, what signals to pay attention to and where to double down? Yeah, so I mean, one of the most obvious pivots, which I won't go into because I think so obvious, is just how, pe how people work and working from home and working over this. So we all know, we all know that one, um, although I think we're reaching the, a, a saturation point um, and we need to get back in offices together. Um, uh, but um, I, I think, you know, one of, one of the lovely pivots we talk about from the Founders Factory Company is quite a fun one, which is company, a company that was called Charged Up and it was doing... Uh, charging, uh, so it was doing charging stations and re for retailers. So you get a battery, you'd rent a battery and you walk around Marks and Spencers and you'd have your battery pack charging your phone. And then what happened obviously is COVID and nobody was going to retail and so their business was dead, except it wasn't because what they pivoted to was uh, um, hand sanitizer stations everywhere. So in other words, if you wanted to buy hand, hand sanitizer station you would buy it from them and they've now in multi-million pound revenues and this was a small company doing these hand sanitizer stations and now they've changed their name to the up, to the up group or something uh, the up company sorry the up company and they are um so it's, that's a nice example of a pivot um but what i think is more prevalent is are those who are really just quite honestly lucky enough to be covid beneficiaries and they are doubling down on the market opportunities. So, you know, made.com, which I helped co-found, is a good example of that. It is a furniture retailer direct from factory to consumer. And, you know, this is the first time ever in the UK where furniture sales have exceeded fashion sales. So it's quite an interesting trend. So, and obviously what happened is a lot of the traditional um, retailers had to shut their stores and made.com was obviously geared up. We do have a few showrooms, but we're really geared up for online. So it's a question then of doubling down uh, and, you know, and, and really being ambitious. And so it, the, the pivot is just almost have more ambition and say, this is our moment. This is our time. You have to, you know, terrible term to say in a, in a, in a global crisis, but sort of you do have to capitalize on that when you're on. Yeah. There's always a combination of hard, hard work and preparation meeting luck and kind of being there at the right moment. But there's also um, times to recognize when it's an opportunity to grow and take huge risks that you otherwise might have been too timid to take on. And I've seen a lot of that happening across the globe of people accelerating their growth by five years because they had no other choice but to be brave enough and try. Um, and so that's, that's actually been the silver lining, I think, of COVID. Absolutely. And I, I think the other point is just is to still be optimistic. I mean, 
I don't think there is a pessimistic entrepreneur. That, those, that doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. So I think you, you have to be optimistic. So if you're an optimistic entrepreneur, while everyone else is in a doom and gloom mode, you're then thinking, how do I not play defense, but how do I play offense? So I think that's the, that's the major pivot strategy now is saying, actually, let's assume the world is a beautiful place again next year and that come pick your month, March, May, April, May, June, um, enough people are vaccinated and the world is raring to get back. How do you capitalize on that situation and take yourself forward to that? How do you, again, take hire the best talent? Because now is an amazing time to hire amazing talent. And you take a risk on talent now and you take a risk on growth. I love that. So my two final questions you've led perfectly into the second to last, which is in 2019, you became a male champion of change. And can you please explain what that means for you and how that informs some of these hiring decisions that, that founders can be making right now? Yeah, look, diversity is obviously a mega topic at the moment. And I often look back, as I alluded earlier to the culture of lastminute.com, and obviously I found co-founded it with a woman. Um, it wasn't deliberate, it just happened. And we actually had an incredibly diverse team and that just happened. So part of me is always thinking, well, people should just be like, oh, you just hire the best talent and you create a melting pot. And it's obviously, it's obvious that diversity creates better teams, but clearly that probably, that hasn't happened enough. So how do you catalyze that elsewhere? So we launched Accelerate Her, which was, you know, based on the premise that there weren't enough women at Founders Forum. So that was because we had this um, criteria set of like, had you founded a business over 500 million, there was nothing we could do. You couldn't fake it. Not as many women had, 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 found, had done that as men. But the point was, people pointed out, well, look, can you help at least in the pipeline? So Accelerate Her was set up to help women in earlier stage in their journey and act as a community to really help them succeed and connect them with men. So not just women talking to each other, but connect them to the men who could really help and support them. And then Male Champions of Change was actually an Australian initiative um, set up by the UN representative for gender equality, I think it is. And, um, we took the license for that for Europe under Accelerate Her. And the, the lovely part of it, so we have great people, like we have the head of the, the BBC and the head of NASPERS and the heads of um, WPP and these big corporates, um, all, all male as it had to be. And, but what was interesting is their passion to help on that gender equality journey. And what I liked most about Male Champions of Change is it's a very data-driven approach and it's very much about learning from other, from other top CEOs about what they've done that works. So it's not just a sort of talking shop, it's really saying, well, this is what we did to help in, in, the, in this area of our business, and you can learn from that, and we, we can all make efforts. So while we're not the perfect member of it, because we're not big enough, to be honest, most of these are companies are the sort of hundreds of thousands, 100,000 employees, um, but I'm there as, um, because as Accelerate Her, we, we, we decided that Mail Champions Dream was an organization we wanted to support and we could help get these great CEOs around the table. And they've actually really enjoyed it. I was just speaking to um, Federico Marchetti over the weekend, who's the founder of Yuxnet Porte, who is very passionate on this topic. And he was saying how much he's enjoyed that journey and how impactful it's been for, for, for his company. I think it's incredible work. And I love that you're not siloing the women. They're um, being integrated into the larger system with this active mentorship, partnering, lessons learned, and not just putting the burden back on the disadvantaged to create their own support network, but giving them that outlet 
and partnership. And I appreciate it because almost all of my career, I've been the only woman in the room. And it's, I recognize how important it is to feel like you have community and people who understand your unique perspective and, and celebrate that as, as a strength. So my last question, which is my favorite question to ask the guests is, what is giving you hope for the future? Especially now as we're looking towards putting this pandemic year behind us, in entering a new year of 2021, what is giving you hope? I guess what's hopeful, and I guess many people say this, it's sort of, it, it's quite obvious that this new generation, this millennial generation, if one wants to call it that, are so energized by having purpose to their jobs and careers. So it's the fact that you have a new blend of capitalism, for want of a better term, whereby companies that are successful will have purpose at their core, not just because they want to preach worthiness, because it's good business. Um, so I think that helps us get into new exciting sectors. When we look to invest in startups, uh, we, we think, can they attract amazing talent? Now, some of that's about, do you have a mega charismatic founder? But some of it is about, are you doing something with purpose that amazing people who could have the career in anything will say, that's where I want to work because they're doing something interesting. Like, I'll just take Elephant Healthcare as a minor example of a company that, we're, that we've backed that is helping with electronic health records, electronic medical health records in, in Africa and emerging markets. And you're finding that they're getting a lot of attention just because they're doing something that is worthwhile. And the other sector that's, again, very obvious, but we're going to see so many companies get funded over the next few years in that area, is climate tech. So those companies that are helping in some way, and I mean, I think the most obvious, the cliche there is Elon Musk and Tesla, really. Um, but we'll see, we'll see swathes of them getting funded. They're doing really interesting things um, that, are, that are helping the climate. And, 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 that, and that's exciting. It's incredible. This has been such an inspiring conversation. So much wisdom that's going to help so many entrepreneurs. And you've really gotten to the heart of what Bet on Yourself podcast is really about. It breaks my heart when I meet people who don't like their work. It's such a big percentage of our life. And I've been so blessed to be in a career that I love, that's taught me so much and challenged me and made me grow. And to give that gift to, to more people who can then start seeing themselves as entrepreneurs and creating this good they want to see in the world and an environment that's fulfilling and built around passion and learning and enjoying your life. So thank you for being a huge part of this community. And thank you so much for the generous offering of your time today. This has been really inspiring. Thank you for uh, asking me on. It was really enjoyable. Thank you. The pleasure. Thank you, Brent. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast. If you're like me, you have a lot of new insights and ideas of things you want to implement from this episode. Don't worry if you were listening to this while walking the dog or putting a baby to sleep or driving and didn't have hands free to take notes. We've done the hard work for you. Check out the show notes here in your podcast app or on my website, annhyatt.co, for additional resources. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which always supplements these podcast themes with additional free resources. May I ask for a quick favor? Please click on that follow or subscribe button here in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode and give us a five-star rating. I'd love it if you'd also share this via your social media with your friends and tag me so that I can see what resonated with you, who you would like to hear on future episodes, and what topics are on your mind. We'll be back next week with even more content to support you in your big bets. I'll see you then.